Welcome to the Thrive Church Podcast. Listen anytime you miss a service or want to hear a message again from our Sunday worship services and select special services. Lead Pastor Brian Bauer, as well as guest speakers, will bring messages that will help you encounter God, love people. Join us for virtual service on Facebook Live at Encounter Thrive. Or for those comfortable, we'd love to have you for our in-person services Sundays at 10. To learn about us, what we believe, how to connect, how to give, or how to find us, visit the all-new EncounterThrive.com. And now, here is our message. All right, good morning. So we're really in the series because I feel like the Lord told me to. And uh, I, I don't want to. None of this stuff, nobody, anybody ever's like, Pastor Brian loves getting in the mix of things. I don't actually love it. I just, when God says, you know, tell the truth and this is what my word says, we do. So, um, and, and that being said, the next series will probably be you know, a lot nicer, more happies. Okay, just so you know. Um, and this, this series won't be that long, okay? There's not going to be like eight weeks of culture deconstruction. Why is it called that, culture deconstruction? Well, if you're not aware, deconstruction is like a really big popular term now. Um, kind of goes along with the idea of like there's a group of believers who basically left the faith and they call themselves ex-evangelicals. Uh, Marty Sampson from Hillsong, who was a worship leader, songwriter, and and numerous others who, um, and and Josh uh, Josh I forget his last name. He wrote the I Kiss Dating Goodbye book. Um, Joshua Harris, thank you. Um, he also kissed Christianity goodbye, which wasn't great. By the way, I didn't like that book in the first place, so I was right the whole time. Anyway, so um, uh, I kissed my wife the first time at the altar, too, the day we got married. So, uh, And I didn't even read his, read his book, so there you go. So, um, But I want to deconstruct the things that are deconstructing us. I think these people are walking away from the faith because nobody talked them through the correct things of the word of God. I was blessed. Chase was so sweet to me the, the other week. He's like, thanks for preaching the whole counsel of the whole word of God. You know, not just the parts that we like and things like that. And Thank you, by the way, Chase. It was very kind of you. Um, but those words stuck in my head. And I was like, but that's what I was taught growing up. In the faith, like this is what we're supposed to be and do. It's not, we don't get to portion it out to the parts we like or that are a little more cultural acceptable. Like that's not how it goes. You know, this is, it's the whole thing. And the beauty of the whole thing, like we forget how good God is and how amazing he is in the times that we're living in. Because we start, and the more these times go on, it, the more we're focused on it, the more we're zeroed in on it versus what God says and who he is. So I hope, like last week, we, we tackled the concept of feminism and, and the first wave of mostly positive and everything after that pretty much deconstructing um, God's design and gender and a hundred other things, right? It, there's, not a, there's not a lot of positive to it anymore. So... This week we're going to talk about something further than that, but I hope, and I said it last week, the thing you need to walk away with though is who God made you to be. You are not defined and designed solely by your gender or preferred gender or background, but that you are God's creation. God is good. And, and that's all that really matters. He's in control. He rules. He reigns. He's, he's going to, like, we know how the book ends. It's all going to be okay, even if it's not today. 
Hallelujah. Glory to God. It's good news. Man, you guys are, this is a tough room this morning. Let's try it again. It's all going to be okay. Hallelujah. Glory to God. He's so good. I know, I know the Bears aren't in the Super Bowl, but they never are. So get over it. Um, hasn't been since like 85. All right, I know 2004, 2005, we had that one year. It was a fluke. Um, and to talk about the goodness of God before we even get in the message. Tony, would you come on up? I wanted to just bolster your faith this morning. I just thought this was awesome. Tony is going to share a great story of something God did in his life recently. Go ahead, Tony. Uh, thank you, Pastor. Good morning, Thrive. He got a better welcome than I don't. Oh. <laughs> I, um, I appreciate this opportunity. Um, a few weeks ago, as you know, we uh, were part of the men's retreat. And uh, awesome time, a firm believer in it, and I'm glad that we're going to continue on this and we're going to do whatever we can to make it happen. Um, but about a week prior to the men's retreat, I was praying, as I do every morning, and I was praying for, you know, I took out my laundry list of all my sins, right? And it was pretty long. And I says, you know what, help me God with pride, with greed, with selfishness, just take it out of my heart. I want to be more like Jesus and a whole lot less like me. And I would be praying it day after day, and nothing happened, and that was fine. And I moved on with my day, and and um, did my, you know, went on with my life. So here comes the men's retreat, and great message, great time. And then Pastor Brian takes the metal bucket and says, "We're going to pass it around for some tithing, for some giving." And I said, um, I was thinking to myself, well. You know, I, in my mind, I give a lot to the church as it is. I mean, I, I, I don't need to give anymore. But I had a $20 bill in my left pocket, and I had five singles in my, my right pocket. So I said, well, you know what? And this is how guys really do it, and I see it all the time. It's kind of like a flip of the hand with the money and then pass the bucket, so you don't really know who's putting what in there. So I'm like, well, I can put in a single or two singles, and no one will know what I'm doing because I'll just do the flip <laughs> of the hand. But then it kind of hit me as the bucket was coming around. I'm like, when you ask God for patience, what does he do? He tests you by giving you people to be patient, right? And if you want kindness, he puts you in positions to be kind. Well, if you want to be less selfish and, and less greedy and more generous, what does he do? Well, he gives you opportunities to give. So as the bucket is going around, I says, should I, should I put the $20 bill in? And again, the reason why this was hard for me is because I am the guy that is kind of still lost in, in, in time. I'm kind of, I still think a candy bar should be 50 cents. And when I saw yesterday that it was $1.50, I really, I'm like, what happened to this? What happened to this, the prices? That's true. A, a, a White Castle's burger used to be 39 cents, and now it's like $1.25. And I'm like, what happened here? I don't understand. So understand, $20 is a lot still in my mind. And I says, well, you know what? God, I'm just going to, here, I got convicted. I put the $20 in. It was hard. I put it in the bucket. And I passed it on. And did you know, everyone, that it was so much peace that I felt when, when, the, when the bucket passed me with my $20 in it? I felt such at peace. When you give, God gives you not, not necessarily materially, but he gives you spiritually. And man, did I feel at peace, and I felt great. Finished the rest of the night, had a great time with the guys. End of the story, right? Well, the next day on Saturday, we, um, you know, the guys did a lot of volunteer stuff, a lot of crazy things, a lot of cutting wood and doing all this volunteers everyone needed to do. Well, Pastor Ed came up and says, I need a volunteer. And 
no guy raised their hand because of all the embarrassing stunts that we were doing the night before. So everyone was just kind of like this. You're just staring like, so what does Dave Ebert do? Our very own Dave Ebert says, I'll, I'll volunteer. And the pastor says, no, no, Dave, you volunteer enough. You stay down. Let's get another volunteer. There were 68 guys in the room. And he's looking around. And I'm kind of sitting where, like, Daniel is sitting right now. And he's like, you, you come up and volunteer. Me? Yes, you. So come up on stage. He comes up and he says, here's a crisp $20 bill. Hold on to this. I got some questions I want to ask you. And he goes and he asks me questions. Do you find the value in this? If I crumbled it up, would you still find the value? If, if I kicked it on the ground and got it dirty, would you still find the value? I'm sure we've all heard of that. After the end of this little uh, volunteer thing, I, he says, thank you, Tony, for volunteering. And I said, thank you. And I gave him the $20 bill, and I'm walking off. And he says, no, this is yours for volunteering, for your participation award. And I looked at it, and I'm like, oh, cool, thank you. So I go, and I sit down, and I'm like, in my mind, well, that's, well I just made my 20 bucks back. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm whole again. This is great. And then sure enough, the bucket starts coming around again. <laughs> so, in, so in my mind, I made whole, I got my 20, I still got my five singles. I already gave yesterday, and then I get that conviction, right? And then you know how God convicts you, right? It's always that, that, that nice, gentle, I got the message, and I was convicted to go ahead and give that 20 again. And I'm like, you know what? What am I going to do with five singles? Someone else can use it more than me. And I gave, so I gave 25. I ended up getting $45 when originally I just wanted to give one or two. So it just shows the goodness of God right there, the what, how he takes care of all of his children. And when you give, again, let me make it clear. It's not when you give, you're expecting to get the same rate. But I really believe that God was speaking to my heart saying, just trust me, Tone. Whatever you give, you can't outgive me. Amen. I'll take good Come care on. of you. That's good. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so much, Tony. Um, man, isn't that cool? And it's like 40-fold, right? God increased it times 40. There's a holy number there, too. Uh, unrelated note, Tony's going through a tough time financially. Keep him in your prayers. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, that's just so, just the goodness of God, right? And the small thing, it's small to us. It's big to him. Right, when he gets our hearts and he just does these things. These are the things that God does and he does them all the time. And it's so good. So that even as we walk through these tough things, remember that. Remember he's good. Remember he's moving. Remember he does the best even in the worst things. And just, just keep your eyes on that. I encourage you to. So, all right, tackling the subject of the day. Um, so a few years ago, I... I before I was a pastor, uh, lead pastor anyway, I had a movie podcast for a while. Because I'm a big movie guy. I love movies. Um, and I would listen to other podcasts, and, some, and then I'd do my own. And we would, me and a friend of mine, um, uh, we would talk through movies. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We, there was nothing spiritual about it. It was, just, it was just a release. It was a hobby. It was fun. Did it, you know, like once a month or so. It was a lot of fun. And, uh, and I remember one time, and I think it was about 2012 or so, do you guys remember the movie Lincoln when that came out? Yeah, I was, I was enjoying the movie Lincoln, and I saw it, and I, Daniel Day-Lewis is probably the greatest actor of our time. 
He just, he, he's a chameleon, like he's lost in his characters. He, he studies Abraham Lincoln. He, he even, his voice is kind of high-pitched because as it turns out, Lincoln probably had a higher-pitched voice. All the things like that. But I remember, as we're going to review this movie, I think it's amazing. And I listened to this podcast that I had liked about movies. And this podcast goes into this description this description about the movie Lincoln about how historically inaccurate it really is and how much Lincoln really wasn't that much of a hero. And he had a lot of selfish interest in this. And, and really, they wanted to keep slavery going. And he just went on. And, and first, that was the moment that I'm like, well, I'm done listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, and, then, and then I couldn't believe it, but it was one of those moments where my brain started the alarms in my head started going off that says, what's happening? Now, this is 12 years ago. How in the world could anybody? This man literally, God used him to help lead the way to free the slaves, to undo something in our country and still hold the country together. It kind of doesn't get more heroic. It doesn't get more brave. It doesn't mean you have to like everything about his life or anything like that. It, it just, that's an unbelievable story. And then to try it with the twist of modernity, uh, they know though there were other motives. Why? Because we live in a time of deconstruction. That everything we knew was true or believed in, we have to tear it all down. Why? Well, I would tell you, I mean, the real reason why is the spirit of the age. It's the spirit of the Antichrist. It's to destroy these things. We were built, whether you like it or not, this country was founded on a Judeo-Christian value system. If you don't believe that, I love you, you are ignoring historical documentation. The 13 colonies in all of their constitution separately, they all recognized the denomination that they came from and designed their rules around that denomination for their colony. It's unbelievable, except maybe save one. That's how we started. Doesn't mean we've done that lockstep. Somebody would raise the, it's the whataboutism, which again is deconstruction. Yeah, but were there slavery in our past? And, and, and there were, yes, of course. I don't know if you know this, there's slavery in every culture's past. Every culture. And that doesn't mean you burn it all to the ground. What it does mean is you learn from it and then you change the things that need to be changed. And you condemn the things that need to be condemned. But I would argue that Judeo-Christian value ethic is what drove us out of slavery, not what kept it in place. Because nobody can reconcile man being intrinsically worth something and hold slaves. So we have this built into the system, and now it's constantly incestual, like an insane amount being torn to shreds. And, and I know I've talked, I know I've got a few of the, of the boomers in the room, and almost everyone I know who I've talked to, they lived through the 60s, and most of them would say it's worse now than it was in the 60s. Is that fair to say? Now, there's a few who might disagree, but overall, it's worse now. 
how does that happen? Well, there's the four reasons, I think. And again, this series is giant aerial views of getting a lot of information quick, all right? A few things that I think has happened, Darwinism in academia, okay? A misconstrued view of the separation of church and state. Okay, you should know, nowhere in the Constitution does it say the words separation of church and state. It's not in there. Look it up. No, what it says, it shall make, uh, shall establish no. It doesn't, it also says not prohibiting. Okay, so nowhere in there does it say separation of church and state. Um, and in tandem, there's a group of people, mostly on one side of the aisle, but some on the right, who are arguing if you object to something like this that says actually the separation of God from country really doesn't work. It's like separating God from the individual. If you are a follower of Christ, you believe everybody is made to worship, whether they like it or not. We're always worshiping something, which is true on the miniature scale as well as on the macro scale, which means it's also true in a country. Okay? All right. Anyway. So with that said, okay, to say there's a group saying right now Christian nationalism, that's the evil danger of the day. Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. Now what's interesting is nobody can really define what that term is. Why? Because it's a giant broad term in order to marginalize a group of people. That group used to be termed evangelical and before that it was the Christian right. These are new terms in order to marginalize a group of people, in order to take your voice and shut it up and mark you and I as bigots. It's a red herring. It's a fallacy. It doesn't exist. Nobody in here wants to make somebody pray to Jesus at the end of the barrel of a gun. And if you do, let's talk after, because you got some things wrong. Okay? Nobody wants that. All right? But what happened is, okay, we adopted that in by, by a lot of different things, which we're going to get into some of them, okay? Another thing, Marxism and academia. So notice, notice what they're partnered with, the first two, or the first, the first and the third Darwinism and academia, Marxism and academia, okay? If you go to basically just about any college, Christian or not, today, you will have to war for your faith and contend for it. Even in the most Christian, even in Assemblies of God colleges and some of them, they are bringing in some Marxist ideas and they don't even recognize that that's what it is. And it's not with the intention of hurting their faith or hurting anybody. They're just trying to explore and expand ideas. But here's the thing, bad ideas usually don't need to be explored. <laughs> But nobody's dis discerning that. So few are actually discerning, this is a bad idea, let's not do it. You know, there's times in my car, if I'm driving down the road, I have feelings. Now, psychology is built on exploring and understanding feelings. And I believe in that to a point. But there are times when I'm in traffic and that person is going 40 and a 55, and all I feel is going right through them. 
My car's just tearing through theirs. I don't want them to die. I just want something bad to happen to them and their car, and then they can be stranded, but they're physically fine. Well, I feel that way. Guess what? I do not explore that feeling <laughs> because that's a bad feeling. <laughs> that feeling is not my friend. It's true. I feel that way, but that feeling is not the truth. All right. Marxism and academia, we're going to get into it, but what does Colossians say about it? Colossians 2.8. Be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that's according to human traditions and the elements of the spirit of the world and not according to Christ. What we're tackling today is basically secularism and humanism. Okay, one other one, uh, another major thing that happened in our country, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, 1963. Does anybody know? Go ahead, Bobby. Say it louder. Yep, she went all the way to the Supreme Court to take prayer out of schools. Now, at no point did that prayer in schools push a denomination. But teachers could no longer lead prayer. Now, teachers cannot lead prayer. But you should know today, it is perfectly legal for you to pray in school, for you to bring your Bible in school, for you to start a Bible study in school. You can do all of those things, and nobody can stop you. And if they do, let us know. We will get you free legal counsel because it's illegal. But to say that teachers could not, secularization. And very tragically, Madeline Murray O'Hare spent her life dedicated to atheism. And then she was kidnapped with her uh, son and grandchild. And they were brutally murdered. And lastly, more relativism and progressivism. Okay? It's, it's part of our day. What's happened? How, is the, how have these things happened? There's a lot of things, but these things have happened in our society. So those four things, I'll review them again. Darwinism and academia, a misconstrued idea of the separation of church and state, Marxism and academia, Madeleine Murray O'Hare, moral relativism, and progressivism. And I, you could, Madeleine Murray O'Hare is probably more of a symptom than a cause, Okay. Just show you a little bit what happened. 1947, Everson versus the Board of Education. Under the First Amendment, neither state nor the federal government could pass laws which end, aid one religion or all religions or prefer one over the other. Misconstrued idea, but notice, what's the decision? Five to four. Problem is when our Supreme Court, and people, they've been using it this way for 100 years now, when our Supreme Court had one political bent over the other versus the idea of upholding the intentions of the Constitution and our forefathers, um, they decided to use their political leanings in order to deconstruct the, the society towards their political bent. If you look, here's a graph of what's happened in our country since prayer has been taken out of schools. Crime has exploded, behavioral problems in schools, children without fathers, marriage rates where they used to be to where they are now, birth rates for where they used to be to where they are now. America's giving to charity has dropped by at least a third. Say, well, that's not, that's, you can't say causation from correlation. I can't, but that's a lot of things. And I would argue from 
from that moment in 1963 on, I don't think we've been getting better. All right, now here is a quick breakdown. I'll try and maybe post some of this if you're interested in it. If you do want me to post it, please let me know. Um, in some of these notes, I'm, I'm happy to give them to you. Here's a breakdown of basically religion and science and their competition in the courts and in the public school system over the last 120 years or so, uh, 150 years. Darwin publishes The Origin of Species in 1859, which even right there, the title, The Origin of Species, his title alone is meant to be a direct stab at organized religion and belief system. His goal was taking down Christianity. That was his focus. I would tell you, and I could, we don't have all, time, all day to take it apart, but Darwinism, for the most part, is garbage science. Darwin himself said, Darwin himself said, if this cell is found to be more than just a glob of tissue, then my whole theory goes out the window. And does anybody know what we discovered in the 1940s and 50s? A thing called DNA. To get one strand of proteins in order in a strand of DNA, one protein in order in your body, digital code, is about one to the 250th power likelihood of a happening. You are filled, that's one, st one part of one strand of DNA. You are filled with billions of strands of DNA, billions. So that number is astronomical. No physicist on the planet could argue that could happen by chance ever. We haven't had enough time. No evolutionary biologist could, could date the world back far enough to argue that into existence. Existence, and yet we teach it in schools every day. It is intellectually dishonest. It is foolishness. Great men like Stephen Meyer, brilliant scientist, would tell you intelligent design is the real only option. To believe anything else is actually quite stupid. Nobody looks at, comes into church and we're like, can you believe that just happened? Look at those TVs, they just got there. That's amazing. <laughs> Look where those chairs are. But we do that with the human body, the earth, and its formation all the time. No, it's billions of years. It would take way more than trillions of years. It's not possible without design. Anyway, all right, moving on. All right, Darwin publishes The Descent of Man, which argues humans are descended from apes. Um... And then, fast forward, because I can't go over all of them, 1870s, American evangelist Dwight Moody, maybe you've heard of him, begins attacking evolution, arguing Darwin's theory contradicts biblical truth. And by the 1920s, many Christian ministers and pastors are opposing this being taught in public schools. And in 100 years, we've completely lost our backbone. We've let them win for the sake of their favor. Can you imagine? Some people say, well, that's what Jesus was like. Baptist leaders like Russell Moore, Ed Stetzer, and numerous others are saying today, no, these are, the, we just need to win their favor. We need to be winsome. Like Jesus was. Like Jesus was. Do you remember what Jesus did? Yeah, to the woman in adultery, he was pretty compassionate. And to Pilate, and to the Pharisees, 
and to the Romans and the Sadducees and the people in the temple, he was pretty direct. He said, this is a lie. Nobody makes a ministry out of that, right? We all want to be, we want to be winsome. <laughs> to the point that I can be, but I won't be winsome with a lie. All right, moving on. 1925, Tennessee versus Scopes. School teacher John Scopes is convicted of teaching evolution. Scopes' conviction is later overturned on the basis of a legal technicality. 1961, engineer Henry Morris and theologian John Whitcomb published the Genesis Flood, which argues there is scientific evidence to support a literal reading of the biblical creation story becomes a major bestseller and one of the beginnings of the creation science movement. Just so you know, even recently, Darwinists and evolutionary biologists are saying something about 10,000 years ago happened and it was catastrophic to the world, but we don't know what it is. Look it up. It's new science they're discovering now. Anyway. 1970, Henry Morris founds the Creation Institute, which is a phenomenal group. Check it out. Um, and if we just keep going down, okay, uh, 1999, the Kansas Board of Education rules that biology teachers can offer instruction in evolutionary theory, but that subject will not be included on statewide standardized tests. And then in the Board of Education case, federal appeals court strikes down a Louisiana law requiring public schools to read a disclaimer questioning evolutionary theory. Do you see what happened? In 100 years, in one century, it went from we have an idea and, and enough people saying, I think this is bad and wrong, to you cannot even question it. By way of academia, let me put it another way. By way of capturing your children. I hate to say this, and you know I don't say that. I don't think I've ever said this in the pulpit. But that is what Hitler did. Hitler knew better. If I capture the children, I'll capture the nation. If I can teach you that you have no purpose, that you are, you are a design of chance and accident, there is no point to your life. There is no point to mankind but that which we make ourselves and that is subject to the person who has the most power. This is where we've come from. This is what has indoctrinated our society. This is who we've, we've, we've bought into, the moral relativism that we've created. This is where Darwinism led us. Marxism and academia, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a minute. And, and what, are, what are the results? What are the results of this humanistic idea? A deconstruction phenomena has overtaken our land, right? There's the rise of the nuns in the last 30 years or so. Roughly 29% of US adults, or 28%, are religiously unaffiliated. In 1990, that number was 10%. In 2012, it's 20%. In 2023, it is now 28% and growing. Nearly a third of all Americans say, I don't belong to anything when it comes to belief. Doesn't mean they believe nothing. Doesn't mean they're atheists. They call themselves I'm nothing. 
which is almost worse. What do you believe? Nothing. So you don't believe, so you're an atheist? Not really. Do you realize the, the, the utter washing away of the human will in that sentiment? To get us to a place of being completely submissive and docile and, and with no opinion? This is where we've come, right? And it creates a moral relativism. Anything goes. Truly, it creates a culture that says the, only the strong survive, as, as Darwin argued. Only might makes, makes right now. Because whoever's strongest must be the one who's correct. That's where we are. That's what humanism has created. Vody Bauckham said it this way. Go ahead and go ahead and play the clip, Crook. Let's try it again with the sound on. That's humanism. Me first. To question everything and to begin to tear it down so that what becomes, what, if God isn't above it or, or everything else, is, if there's not something above me, then what, what am I? I am now the highest. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I start questioning, does any of this matter? And we think that it's new. Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say? And I'm just going to stop there. Is that really what the Bible says, Pastor Brian? I don't know. It doesn't really say anything about these things. Does that, is that really what it means? Does that, does, I posted the other day something about marijuana use, and I believe it is incredibly destructive with, uh, with THC. I, I know that it is. It's scientifically proven. In one in four people, regular use of it will cause psychopathy and or schizophrenia. In one in four people, it is pretty much a guarantee. Why, why regular use of it? And you're like, oh, I did it in the 60s, and that was very different than now. God does forgive, he redeems. I'm not saying you're stuck there, but if you do it on a regular basis, you're gambling with your mind and with your soul. Intoxication is dangerous, and it's dangerous to the soul. But all of us push back on that and say, is that really what it says, Pastor Brian? Does the Bible really say anything about intoxication? Does the Bible really say anything about men's and women's roles? Does the Bible say anything about gender? Does it really say, do you see what I'm saying? It's just the voice of the devil. 
And he's so good at what he does that when he pops a thought in our own mind, we think it's us. And we question the very foundations that we're standing on. Does the Bible really say I can't fly? Watch this. You're going down, man. It's not going to work. The questioning of it could always be better. Genesis 3-2, he goes on. So at first he questions, he undermines it, he subverts it. And then the enemy says this, of course we may eat from the fruits of the uh, trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the tree from the fruit in the middle of the garden that we can't, are not allowed to eat. And God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Right there. So he went from subversion and deception to straight up lying. Because he knew he had her. I've deceived her. I've got her to question it. She's engaging with me. See, you can say, no, she's not deceived right now. She's telling him. No, no, this is what God said. Ah, but she's engaging the question. She's engaging a bad, evil idea. And he's already got her. Because some ideas are not worth entertaining. When you look in the mirror and the voice says in your head, you're a loser, that idea is worth capturing and killing. It's a lie. When you look at your life and be like, I've wasted it, you capture that. Say, no, I have followed Jesus. I have done my best. I am forgiven and I am redeemed. You capture it and you kill it. You don't listen to it and explore it. One of the lies of modernity, of secularism, is to explore every feeling you have. Not every feeling is worth exploring. I know, I'm in my 40s. Some days I wake up and my foot hurts. Do you know why? Me either. (laughs) Because I'm in my 40s. Now part of me wants to run to the doctor, get x-rays, maybe do an MRI. But the rational part of me knows Give it a couple weeks, because that's life now. It will pass. And almost always it does. Because that's life. You move on. You don't have to explore every pain, every feeling. Some should, especially the ones that don't leave you alone. Is there a godly side to exploring the roots of your faith and saying, I'm wrestling with some things? Absolutely. Jacob wrestled with God, and God rewarded him for it. But the difference was Jacob wanted God in the end. He didn't want the question. Some people ask questions for the sake of being a person who asks questions. That is deconstructionist. It is subversive, and it's not a good place to be. Do you see the difference? The motivation, and one says, is my motivation to tear something down or to see it be its best? I'll be honest. There's been times when I look back, I didn't question my own questioning, and I was tearing things down with no solution to offer. That's called being a jerk. (laughs) I know, I've done it. Don't do it. 
All the ones who ran around the country said, we're going to tear down that statue. We're going to take the Ten Commandments out of here. We're going to remove this. That, that, that guy was racist, so we're tearing it down. The problem is, they have nothing to replace it with. Destruction for the sake of the end of it is just that. It's just destruction. And it's not worth listening to. It's humanism. And it's ugly. But people think, well, it's not a religion, so it's okay. Matter of fact, I had somebody on Facebook a while ago. He was arguing with me over basically arguing that children should be allowed to transition themselves with medication and surgeries, children under 18. So, you know, I love you. If you agree with that, I disagree with you. I think it's child abuse. I think it's horrific. A child's body actually isn't fully developed until you're 25. I don't think you should make any major changes. After that, it is a country where you can make your own choices. I think that would be the wrong choice. I think God designed you, and I think you're amazing the way you are. And you just need to discover that in the Lord. When you do, it's amazing. God doesn't make junk. He thinks you're amazing. He thinks you're beautiful. He thinks you're good looking. But this person said, you can argue this against me, but don't use the Bible. My response, I reject your premise. (laughs) I will use the Bible because I happen to think it's the truth and the authoritative word of God applicable to all our lives in every situation. And I think it's a better foundation than your subjective studies. Your studies change, the word of God doesn't. This has been around for thousands of years. This is the thing you're arguing about, that's been around for five minutes. And it's doing a bad job. It's not changing the suicide rate, it's making it worse. G.K. Chesterton said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. Dostoevsky said, where there is no God, all is permitted. Humanism is not a life without religion. It is a religion of self, which looks a lot like, sorry to burst your bubble if I am, Satanism. The number one Commandment of Satanism. Anybody know what it is? I bet you Chase does. You don't? I'm so surprised. Anybody else know? I just thought you were more culturally adept, that's all. I didn't think you'd been in it or anything. (laughs) Thank you, Al. Alan knows. Alan was a Satanist. So, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right? Number one commandment of Satanism. Do what thou wilt. Because Satanism, ultimately, they would argue, is humanism, which is ironic. Now, the truth truth is true Satanists actually do worship the devil. But anyway, that's another backstory. (laughs) The other day I was at the gym, probably a couple of weeks ago. And as I'm at the gym, there's a big guy there. He's working out, he's bigger than me. And this isn't all fat, okay. (laughs) And I see him. And he's got on his Church of Satan shirt with the commandments of Satanism on the back. And I was like, ha oh, I can't let that go. <laughs> I didn't take long. But I, I, if you know me, like, nope, we're going to engage. <laughs> this is my moment. Come on. If they're big, they got tats, they're carrying a sword or a bomb, I want to talk to them. <laughs> that's just, the, that's my design, all right? Uh, don't ask me why I'm 
pretty messed up. So I went up to him and I said, hey, man, I want to talk to you. Are you a part of that? Yep, I am. How long have you been a part of that? Oh, I don't know, 10 years or so. Hmm, okay. It was a short conversation. I was like, well, where'd you meet? What do you mean? Oh, we have to move around, you know, because of fears and threats and things like that. Really? Hmm, interesting. Well, hey, I just feel important. I just feel impressed to tell you, man. I'm on the opposite side of the aisle, and this is not your friend. It's very real, and he's not on your side. But Jesus loves you. And that was it. And I walked away. Because he did not want to talk. <laughs> but if you're coming in, you're going to represent, you're wearing it to the gym, guess what? That's an open invitation. Somebody share Jesus with me. <laughs> but sure enough, commandment number one, on his back, do what you want. Moral, to, moral relativism, secularism, is Satanism. Because when you elevate and worship yourself, you aren't worshiping yourself. In turn, you're worshiping the devil. Because whenever we worship anything but God, it all funnels back to the enemy. He doesn't need you to worship him directly. He just needs you to not worship God. And the moment you start doing that is the moment you start destroying your life, destroying those around you, and destroying the culture, which is where we are. Because we started worshiping the self. Proverbs 29, 29, 18. Where there is not divine acceptance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. Another version says, where there is no vision, the people perish. The vision is the king, is Jesus. Without him, we go insane and we die. We fall apart. Right? That's where we are. The problem with humanism is it destroys the world. Critical race theory. I know Christians trying to engage critical race theory. Which critical race theory, if you don't know, is basically this. I remember I was talking on the phone with my brother not that long ago. Well, no, it was a few years ago now, pre-2020. And he's like, well, he works at the Apple store. He does not walk with the Lord. And he's like, well, racism is any power structure that diminishes people of other races, mainly white people. And I said, and I said, what? No, racism is thinking or believing you are somehow superior to others based on your skin tone nationality. That's what race. and he said, no, no, no. There's a new definition. I'm telling you what it is. And I said, no, no, no. You can't redefine words to mean what we need them or want them to mean based on our current situation. That's Huh? And he, he went on and he was like, well, I'm just explaining to you what somebody explained to me. Here's what that actually is. That is Marxism. Karl Marx was a German philosopher, not a great guy, and he created a system, a belief. He basically penned and created what, we, what would become socialism and communism, humanism. 
elevate the self. And Marxism, uh, Marx created, a, created basically a worldview uh, system that basically it's the bourgeoisie and, and the poor, or the elite and the small, okay? It's the workers versus the authority. Well, we're doing the, we're doing the actual work. It's like how he owns his own company. And it'd be all his workers saying, we deserve more because we're doing all the work and you're doing this. Now forget the fact that how he put his own life on the line when he started his own company, all of his own money, his own family, he has to run the business and if he gets sued, he's on the line. Forget all of that. They're doing work. <laughs> that's, but that's Marxism. Marxism overthrows authority. But here's the problem. When Marxism plays itself out and it overthrows authority, you know what happens? You still need authority. So the people who take authority become tyrants and dictators and monsters. It's the idea of whoever is over and above. But the problem is God set up authority. It's his idea. He's the king of kings. The Bible says it. God is good with authority. Authority is not evil. Authority can be evil, but the idea of authority is not evil. It's what we do with it. But that's what Marxism does. Because it elevates the self. The problem is, when those people elevating self get into power, you know what they do? They elevate themselves. <laughs> Play the clip. Here are the numbers of people murdered by communist regimes. Not soldiers, ordinary civilians. Vietnam, one million. Eastern Europe, one million. Ethiopia, 1.5 million. North Korea, two million. Cambodia, two million. The Soviet Union, 20 million. China, 65 million, and the numbers are conservative. And of course, these numbers do not describe the suffering endured by hundreds of millions of people who were not murdered. The systematic stripping people of their right to speak freely, to worship freely, to start a business, or even to travel without party permission. No non-communist judiciary or media. The poverty of nearly all communist countries. The imprisonment of vast numbers of Anybody here been to Washington, D.C.? The Holocaust Museum is phenomenal. But even if you don't pay to go in the Holocaust Museum, you can just see the front section of it, which talks about basically tater, uh, dictatorship and terrorist regimes that took over nations. We had an entire youth generation go basically to war in the streets over the war in Vietnam saying we shouldn't be there. So then eventually our government caved and we pulled out causing the death of, 100, uh, of 1 million Cambodians or more, or may, hundreds of thousands at least. See, when we left Vietnam, it made room for the Cameron Rouge to then blow in and wipe out everybody that stood in their way. So it cost us blood and treasure, tens of thousands, no doubt about it. It cost them hundreds of thousands. 
Because secular humanism says the only person that matters is the person in power, and it is now subject to them. But the Bible, the creator says, all life is intrinsically valuable. God loves them. God is for them. Only fools say in their heart there is no God. They're corrupt and their actions are evil. Not one of them does good. We're watching this play out on the world stage over the last hundred plus years. The world without God is not a good world. It's evil and falling apart by the, by the second. But the world with God and those with God in the world are shaping and changing and affecting and preserving. Matter of fact, they're salt and they're light. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? That'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot is worthless. You're the light of the world, like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp's placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for people to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Salt, you are the salt of the earth. There's two things he says you are here. And this is your hope. This is your encouragement in this age of deconstruction. You, you, you are the salt of the earth. Not the pastor, not the people who work on the staff. You are the salt of the earth. You know what salt does? It does a lot of things. And in the ancient world, when Jesus is talking, it does more than we do now. They had no refrigeration. So you know what they did to preserve their food? Cover it in salt. Because that would preserve it until they could eat it. Salt preserves. It holds it together. The church is the conscience of the culture. We are meant to be the preservation. If you're like, no, the church is supposed to be silent, not political, I would tell you the church is supposed to be the church and everything that that means. Whenever, wherever, and however. Sometimes we add flavor and we're a blessing. And sometimes we pour on a wound and it stings, but it's preserving them. You ever pour salt on a wound? It's unpleasant. But if you don't have an antibiotic, this could save your life. That's you and I. Go to the polls and vote for the godly results. Go to the school board meetings and say, this is what the Bible says. We don't believe the Bible. Well, you should. <laughs> you want us to teach the Bible in schools? Well, I want somebody to, maybe not you. <laughs> yeah, I do. If that makes me a Christian nationalist, fine. Call me whatever you want. I don't care. I've been canceled multiple times at this point. I'm okay with it. You know what I found? It just makes me love the kingdom of God more. I don't want this world. I want the kingdom of God. And I want that in the world. You are the light of the world. All right. I need one volunteer who's willing to be picked on for a second. <laughs> All right, come on up. All right, tell me your name. Cass. Cass, nice to meet you, Cass. Okay, have I met you before today, with Cass? Don't believe so. Okay, well, won't you do me a favor? Close your eyes as tight as you can. All right, now Cass is closing her eyes very tight. 
So for her, it's going to be really dark, okay? All right? If, if she does it long enough, it's going to hurt. And when she opens her, go ahead and open your eyes, Cass, right? Okay, that bothers you, doesn't it, right? Yeah, okay, you can sit down. Thank you. That bothers you, right? But that's what light does when it's correct. It shines in the darkness. And sometimes it hurts to see. But if you're in it long enough, it doesn't affect you. You want it. Look up the story of Plato's cave. He, he was teaching this 500 years before Jesus even came. The idea that if you're used to darkness, right? If you're in darkness long enough, if you get up in the middle of the night, then, then you know, your eyes adjust and you're used to this, and then somebody turns the lights on and you're like, what's the matter with you? Right? Because your eyes don't want to adjust to that. And yet, does anybody want to clean the dishes or cook a meal in the dark? No. Because you know what's going to happen. It's not going to work. We're going to get sick. We're going to die. <laughs> the food's going to be disgusting. We are meant to be the light of the world and shine it on the darkness. And here's the best part about it. The darkness, even when it grows, just makes the light all the more powerful. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot extinguish it. There has never been a room so dark that this won't affect it. And the darker it is, the more you can see the light. Shine for Jesus in this world. And don't be afraid of it. And when you do, we will be the culture shapers we will make the impact. We will be the difference. You know, during 2020, when we gathered when nobody else would, I was blessed. I got called in. My, my wife and I stood against the government when they basically legally kidnapped our child for forcing medications on her that she didn't need for the diseases she didn't have that we had already okayed with them to decline. Well, years later, during a time in our country when all's falling apart, and then they were telling governments, local governments, including Lockport, saying you're going to have to mandate this shot to everybody in your system. Now, whether you got the shot or not, that's, that's up to you. I'm no doctor. That's between you and Jesus. I don't care. But if somebody tells me you have to inject this foreign system, foreign thing into your system in order to function in society, that is a moment you as the light of the world should be like, wait, what? Help me understand I'm not here to fight you, but I am here to stand on the word of God. So tell me what, what, what that means. And because of taking those moments of being salt and light in our lives, mayor of the town calls us into a secret meeting with several other key leaders in the city and says, help me. We're facing this. What do I do? He wasn't giving his opinion on the shot. Neither was I saying, what do I do to all these hundreds of people in this town and in the city? Some will take it, some won't. Some are good people. Some are trying to feed their kids. What are we to do? Stand up. Be the light of the world. Be salt. Well, sometimes salt burns. Yeah. But it also saves lives. Sometimes light hurts my eyes. Right. But it also lights the way. Jesus is the way. He is the truth and he is the life. And there's no way to the other side of hope and eternity but him. 
So I'm with him, whatever that means. If that puts me in prison one day, all right, fine. As long as I'm with Jesus. I don't want that. I'm not saying yay, but you know what? And I'm going to do everything I can to fight that until I get there. Not with my fists, but with my prayers and with my conviction and with the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to take up arms. I've already got the arms of eternity at my back. I don't need more. Oh, look, I'll defend my family. That's a different conversation. I'm, I'm all for you owning your own weapons and defending your homes. A different conversation. Be the light of the world. Be the salt of the earth. Don't be afraid. We are on the winning team. And here's the best part. He's already won. The story's already been written. We're sitting in the waiting room waiting for the story to finish. But it's done. It's over. We won. Because he won. What did Jesus say? It is finished. That wasn't the day it got started. That was the day it got done. It's great news. No matter what happens in this nation, I got, it's got a great ending. No matter what happens with the next election, doesn't matter. We got a great ending. Doesn't matter. But I'm still going to be salt and light for as long as I'm here. I'm going to spread it. I'm going to shine it. Because not only am I not afraid, oh, full confidence in who my king is. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We hope this message spoke to you and helped you grow in your knowledge of and love for God. Visit us online anytime at EncounterThrive.com and reach out with questions, prayer requests, or comments. We hope to see you for our in-person services in Lockport, Illinois, Sundays at 10. Yeah.